Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Sarah De Lange, who's professor at the University of Amsterdam. We talk about her article, New Alliances, Why Mainstream Parties Govern with Radical Right-Wing Populist Parties, which was published in 2012 in Political Studies. In the article, Sarah applies theories of coalition formation to governments that formed with a radical right party. While these types of governments used to be quite rare, they have become increasingly common in Europe in the past 20 years. For parties of the mainstream right, these coalitions provide an opportunity as an alternative to governing with the mainstream left. For radical right parties themselves, joining these coalitions has been quite risky, as government participation leads to increased scrutiny and might frustrate some of their voters. While government participation thus constituted a big challenge for the radical right, over the years these parties have learned and improved their behavior. Once in government, they now focus on specific portfolios that suit their agenda. If you want to learn more about Sarah and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under sldelange or visit her website. There are unfortunately some minor problems with the audio toward the end of the recording. I hope you enjoy the conversation nonetheless. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tariq. So today we're going to talk about your work that investigates the government participation of radical right parties. And in your article, you apply theories of coalition formation to better understand explicit governments that formed with a radical right party. Before we talk about the article in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for writing the article? I had two reasons why I wanted to explore this topic. The first one was that I observed in around the turn of the century that there were many uh, radical right parties that uh, became members of government coalitions, including in the country where I'm from myself, the Netherlands. And we really couldn't un account for this development uh, based on the kinds of theories we had about the radical right. So up to that point, it was assumed that radical right parties were a threat to democracy um, and that mainstream parties would actively exclude them from government uh, most of the time. So this was the empirical reason, right? I saw an empirical puzzle in society and I wanted to understand what was going on. The second one was that um, in my studies, I had become familiar with coalition formation theories and I found them extremely elegant compared to other political science theories because they were part of the rational choice literature. Um, uh, they were very simple in a way uh, as theories. They made unique predictions about what kinds of government coalitions were likely to form. Um, and they were not afraid to predict rather than only explain what had only uh, had already happened. So I was very eager to apply these theories to this topic that I was interested in. Um, and 
as it turned out, um, these theories were actually able to explain the government participation of radical right parties. So as a phenomenon, how common are governments that include a populist radical right party? The article also came out, I think, eight years ago. So there's uh, some additional time in which this can have happened. How common are these types of governments? Governments with radical right parties included are actually relatively common. Um, they have um, been formed in a number of periods. So we see a first group of governments with radical right parties being formed around the turn of the century. So that is the Austrian government that included the FPO in 2000. It is the minority governments that were formed in Denmark and Norway in 2001. And it is the Dutch government that included Pim Fortuyn in 2002. So that's a, sort of a first wave of governing radical right parties. And then in later years, we see other government coalitions emerging uh, more recently. So think, for example, of the previous Austrian coalition, but also the Lega Nord, which, of course, was in government uh, in the previous uh, Italian coalition. If you look across Europe, radical right parties are actually more frequently in government in the past years than, for example, green parties. So comparatively speaking, their government participation is quite, quite common. So there seems to be two patterns of how um, radical right parties participate in government or support governments. I think that's the difference. And on the one hand, you have these governments where they're actually part of the governing coalition. But there are also forms where the radical right party just supports a minority government. Um, can you explain this, this difference to me a little more? Yeah, so we see across Europe that uh, in many countries, radical right parties are included in the government coalition. So they are given ministries to fill um, and they conclude a government agreement with the other parties in the coalition as to what kinds of policies they will execute. So this is sort of the traditional way of governing. But then we also see, especially in the Scandinavian countries, uh, radical right parties supporting minority governments. Uh, and in that case, it will be the mainstream right parties, the liberals, the conservatives uh, that form a coalition government. So that fill the ministries and that um, make the coalition agreement. And there will be a radical right party that supports that government when it needs a majority in parliament. So that supports the coalition when they need to pass the budget or when they need to pass key legislation. These minority governments are mainly found in uh, Denmark and Norway. But in 2010, there was also a situation in the Netherlands where uh, the PVV of Geert Wilders supported a mainstream rights coalition uh, from the opposition benches. Now, if we want to explain the government participation of radical right parties, I guess we can separate two blocks and talk about them separately to begin with. One is the group of mainstream parties, established parties, and the other is the radical right party itself. If we start with the mainstream parties, what are the incentives? Why would they want to uh, form a coalition with the radical right? And maybe why wouldn't they want to? 
Well, they have very strategic reasons to want to govern with a radical right party. So, um, of course, they want to be in office. They want to be able to shape policymaking. Um, and the best way to do that is to by getting a majority, by having sufficient support to be in power. Um, and radical right parties can make an important contribution to constructing majorities. And for many mainstream right parties over the last decades, it's been a case of either governing with the radical right or governing with center-left parties. Um, and in many instances, mainstream right parties have preferred radical right parties uh, for the simple reason that their policy agendas are closer together than uh, with uh, mainstream left parties. So there's, there's a strategic incentive for being in office, um, what we call office seeking. Um, and there's also, of course, the, the policy component that I already mentioned. So parties have an incentive to enact the policies that they've promised. And depending on how different parties are in terms of their ideologies, governing might take a lot of compromise. With radical right parties, mainstream parties can execute most of their policy agendas, not only because the differences between their political programs are not that great, but also because mainstream right parties and radical right parties find different kinds of political problems important. So for mainstream right parties, socioeconomic reform is usually quite important, whereas for radical right parties, reforming immigration and integration policy is more important. And that enables radical right parties and mainstream right parties to sort of um, trade off between these two policy areas and say, well, if we work together in a government coalition, you can have your uh, economic reforms as long as I can have my immigration reforms. And that makes both parties happy, uh, but it also makes the voters of these parties happy because they share these differences in policy preferences. And what speaks against forming the coalition with the radical right for the mainstream parties? So for mainstream parties, the main concern with governing with radical right parties has been whether or not these parties are really up for governing. So whether they're ready to uh, bear the responsibilities that come with being in government, whether they're ready to appoint ministers that have the political skills uh, to function well, uh, whether they're willing to sacrifice some of their populism Uh, while being in government and not being the opposition within the government. Um, and if we look across Europe, we see that some radical right parties have managed this quite well. They've been responsible government parties. And we see a number of uh, radical right parties that have been in government for long periods. So if you think, for example, of the Danish People's Party, it has supported three consecutive government coalitions without too many problems. But there's also been instances where the radical right parties really were not up to the task. Um, if you look, for example, at the Austrian FPO and their first period of government participation in 2000, um, it was within roughly a year of assuming office that already three ministers of the party had had to resign because uh, they simply couldn't uh, fulfill their task as ministers. Mm. In a way, when I think about the, the mainstream right and their perspective on the radical right, isn't 
that not being up for government on the radical right side also an incentive for the mainstream right? Because they basically think, well, with those amateurs, we can just do whatever we want and they are not effective anyway. So um, we basically will have our agenda uh, and we can dominate them even when they're in government. I mean, this has often been suggested also, especially in the media, uh, that one way to get rid of these radical right parties that are siphoning away votes from mainstream parties is by giving them responsibility when they're not up for it. And by by doing this, winning back voters that were lost in previous elections. Um, it doesn't really work that way. First of all, because some radical right parties are clearly up for governing. They are sufficiently institutionalized to bear the responsibilities that come with being in office, but also because voters that have shifted to the radical right do not necessarily return to mainstream parties once these parties uh, are less popular. So the Netherlands is a very uh, good point in case, I think. When the PVV was a support party uh, for the government uh, from 2010 to 2012, it lost a lot of its support in the polls for a number of reasons, one being that they had to compromise in government, but also because the pressures of being in government exposed problems within the party with candidates uh, having uh, a shady past. But it was soon after those elections that the party returned to its sort of radical right roots, to its populism, and voters started to flock back to the party. So it might help to reduce support for radical parties in the short run, but usually these parties can quite easily recover when they're uh, back in the opposition benches. And this is also what we show in our book about the mainstreaming of the radical right, that even if radical right parties do mainstream, become less radical right and less populist when they're in government, it's a very short-lived phenomenon. Um, then let's focus now on the radical right. What are their incentive structures? So why would they want to be in government? And what speaks against being in government for them? So for them, there is actually a lot that speaks against being in government. So first of all, they don't have the same need as mainstream parties to be part of a government coalition to have influence on policymaking. Because what we observe in a lot of research about these parties is that mainstream parties cater to their uh, political stances because they're concerned about losing voters. So even when they're not in government, uh, mainstream parties adopt their positions and also have those positions then uh, become policy when they're in the government coalition. So their, their indirect influence on policymaking is quite substantial. And their influence once they're in the government coalition is not necessarily greater. The second reason that they are not always keen on being in government coalitions is, of course, this risk of not being up to the task. Um, and we've seen radical right parties that have been invited to be part of the government coalition decline for that reason. However, the reason that they do often end up being in government is because they're concerned that voters expect them to make this move, right? So voters support these parties. They have been in opposition for a number of years 
And at a certain point, voters expect this party to deliver, to change the system, because that's their electoral promise. And for this reason, radical right parties often do agree to coalition formation with mainstream parties. But interestingly, they often wait till they have reached a certain level of electoral support so that they can bear uh, the negative incumbency effects that come with being in government. So they're very aware that being in government and compromising will cost them electorally. um, And therefore, they usually wait to... till they're big enough to bear that cost. So a very prominent example is the, of this is uh, the FPÖ again. So Haider said in speeches within his own party that they really should have roughly 30% of the vote before it would be interesting to govern. So another element of these parties is, of course, their populism, right? So the, the idea of... Uh, pitching a corrupt elite against the pure people. How can you govern and be populist at the same time? Don't these two things, the anti-elitism of populism and governing, contradict each other? You would expect that there would be a big contradiction there because populist parties, of course, continuously attack the establishment And once they assume office, they govern with the establishment, with mainstream right parties. However, um, research has shown, and this has been especially the research of Duncan McDonnell, that populist parties are really good at having one foot in and one foot out. So when they assume office, they stop attacking the mainstream right, but they continue to attack the mainstream left as well as you know, the media, the judiciary, and the European Union. So they slightly shift their focus to the remaining establishment to uh, maintain their populism. And and this turns out to be quite an effective strategy because it gives them an explanation for why they may not execute the uh, policy changes that they initially promised in their their, uh, electoral manifestos. So the Lega in Italy, for example, and also Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia could easily say, well, we promised you that we would reform uh, the economy, but we can't do it because the media is against us and the judiciary makes it impossible for us to um, implement these changes. And then there's also the European Union who says that we need to keep the budget balanced and therefore we cannot make any investments. So they're quite skilled at remaining populist even when uh, in office. I guess a radical form of this would be the the deep state com- conspiracy ideas that I think also becoming more popular in a way, right? Yes, so we see that conspiracy theories are becoming more popular amongst radical right parties. But this is something of more recent years. So this argument about a deep state wasn't present yet. Uh, in the early 2000s when some of these parties governed for the first time. Mm -hmm. So in the article, then, you apply these more formal, rational choice theories of coalition formation. Uh, Can you explain to me what these theories do, what assumptions they're based on, and which ones you apply to studying the radical right in government? Yeah, so so the coalition formation theories that are used in political science actually have their origins in economics. 
Um, and they predict that gov parties will form the government coalitions that give them the biggest payoff. Um, so parties are assumed to want to govern to either have the spoils of office, um, and that can be ministerial posts, um, it can also be a, a nice car as a minister, uh, a spot in the limelight, and they're assumed to want to maximize their influence over policymaking. So these are the two different strands of coalition formation theories that exist in this literature. Um, in the first strand, it's really the work of uh, Riker that is influential, and he predicts that parties will, will, win, will want to form government coalitions uh, without any unnecessary parties. So if you can form a government coalition with three parties, you would not include a fourth one, because in that case, you'll get less of the spoils because you have to share with more parties. And in the second strand of literature, the idea is that you want to govern with political parties that are as close to you as possible in terms of policy preferences, because in that case, you can form a coalition agreement, a compromise that is closest to your own position and you have to sacrifice a very little of your own principles. In my research, I show that both theories are important for explaining the government participation of the, the radical right. So it's both a matter of mainstream parties being able to govern with radical right parties in small coalitions and a case of these parties being able to govern together because their policy preferences are relatively close together. So it, it's not a case of rivaling theories where the one will be true and the other won't be true. They're actually complementary theories and they can both be true at the same time. Can you maybe give an example for both cases? Well, almost all government coalitions that included the radical right parties that I studied, uh, so these are the government coalitions formed in the early 2000s, actually were predicted by these two theories. So if we take, for example, the, uh, the Dutch government that was for formed in 2002, uh, it was a government coalition that consisted of the Christian Democrats, that was the leading government party that provided the prime minister, of the conservative liberals, and of this newly founded radical right party, the LPF of Pim Fortuyn. And when these three parties came together, they had a government coalition that didn't have any excess members. So all three parties were necessary to have a majority. If one of the parties left the coalition, it would lose its majority. But it was also a coalition that was relatively homogeneous in terms of its policy preference. So other coalitions that could have been formed at that point in time would have been more ideologically diverse. So this was one of the main reasons why this coalition came into being. Um, there was another reason that I also highlight in the second part of the, the paper that you're referring to, which is based on more qualitative research. And that is that all parties in parliament, including the parties that were not in the coalition, really felt that the elections had shown that Dutch voters wanted change, that this 
party of Pim Fortuyn had emerged out of nowhere with 17% of the votes and that this was an indication that they really wanted a different kind of government than they had had in the previous eight years where the uh, Social Democrats had governed with the Liberals. Mm -hmm. I guess one potential example or a, a type of coalition that would speak against the the connected coalition theories. So that it's really um, the, the 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 parties on the right that form these coalitions, and that they're uh, that, that every party in that belongs to this ideological connection is part of the coalition. And something that an, another scenario would be parties of the mainstream left or the left governing with parties of the radical right. And it seems to me that at the national level, that this is very rare, but it, I know cases where this has happened at a more um, sub-national level. And I guess the case of Syriza governing with Anel would be also a case in Greece, uh, would be a case where they weren't necessarily connected, right? Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. So traditional coalition formation theories wouldn't predict coalitions between social democratic parties and, and radical right parties, uh, even though they have formed, as you indicate, in Greece. But they've also been discussed quite extensively, for example, in Denmark, where the Danish People's Party has been quite open towards the Social Democrats and vice versa. Well, even though formal coalition formation theories might not explain these uh, coalitions, I think that the logic behind them still applies in these cases. So why are Social Democratic parties interested in governing with radical right parties? That is because their programs have become more alike over time. And that has happened in two ways. So first of all, social democratic parties have started devoting more attention to immigration and integration issues, but also to law and order issues, uh, etc. So the kinds of themes on which radical right parties campaign. And they've adopted more restrictive positions on these issues, right? So the Danish Social Democrats, for example, uh, are in favor of reducing immigration uh, influx, but also of immigrants that are already in Denmark uh, meeting stricter integration uh, requirements. So that's the, the movement that has taken place from, from the one side of the political specter. But then also from the side of, of radical par right parties, we've seen that these parties started out in the 1980s and 1990s as quite neoliberal in socioeconomic terms. So they were really in favor of uh, deregulation of a free markets economy. And that has changed in recent decades. They've adopted something that we would call as political scientists welfare chauvinism. So they're in favor of a strong welfare state, but a welfare state that is primarily available to natives and not to immigrants. So they for example, would want uh, the state to provide uh, proper uh, unemployment benefits, to provide healthcare benefits, but not to migrants unless they've been in the country for a long time and they've paid into the, the welfare system by paying taxes. And of course, this move has made that the two parties are now much closer together than they were in the 1980s or 1990s. 
So the ideological differences between social democratic parties and, and radical right parties have been diminished. So I guess one contribution of your article is to show how normal coalitions with the radical right are, that we can apply standard theories of political science to understand them much like any other party family. Yeah, um, it's something that these days, if you look at scholarship that has been published in the last 10 years or so, it, it's extremely common. It's nothing novel anymore. But at the time when I wrote this article, which is based on my PhD thesis, which I started in 2004, it was still very common to think of radical right parties, first of all, as a threat to democracy, and second of all, to then assume that not governing with them was the default, because it was a way to protect democracy. And to understand that phenomenon, there were normative theories of democracy uh, focused on defending democracy. So that's a German concept of ways in which political actors, institutions can prevent uh, democratic challenges from eroding uh, our democracies. And although that is a valuable perspective on uh, radical right parties, radical right parties in some ways are also parties like other parties. Um, so I was quite interested to see if traditional political science theories could help us understand um, how these parties operated, but also how mainstream parties responded to the rise of these parties. Mm -hmm. So we've now very much focused on how radical right parties get into government and why and maybe why not. Once they're in government, how do they govern? Do they govern differently? Um, not necessarily. So they try, like other parties in government, to reform policies. Uh, and the extent to which they succeed in doing that really depends on whether or not they're well prepared for go their government participation. Uh, and in this respect, we've seen a development over time. So the parties that governed for the first time around the turn of the century were relatively unprepared. They had never been in government before, and they had very few international examples to look at to see how you had to govern, what you had to do to get concessions from mainstream parties and get your own policy reforms implemented. So if we look at these parties in the early 2000s and we try to assess whether they changed policymaking in their core areas, different aspects of immigration and integration policy, for example, then we see in most cases relatively little change. Uh, one of the only exceptions to this rule is Denmark, where the Danish People's Party was quite effective, even from the opposition benches, because it was, of course, a support party to a minority government, to change policymaking and make immigration and integration policies more restrictive. However, we also see that after those experiences, radical right parties really learned from their mistakes and also learned from each other. So they had quite extensive contact uh, amongst each other to see uh, what it was like to govern and what were the pitfalls to avoid. And in more recent years, we see that they're more effective in changing policy. And one of the reasons for this is that they have a better sense of what kinds of ministries they would like to have uh, 
to change policy. So they're usually quite keen these days to have the Ministry of Interior Affairs, the Ministry of Justice, um, and if possible, to have a special minister in charge of immigration, integration and refugees. And another thing that they've learned is that they really shouldn't give in too much on these core issues uh, when they're negotiated with mainstream parties. So it's okay to give up all kinds of policy promises in other areas, but not in the areas um, for which you're supported by your voters. So a really nice example of how, how this is done effectively is, I think, the Lega, uh, which was in government with the Movimento Cinque Stelle uh, in the previous Italian government. And Salvini deliberately took up the Ministry of Interior Affairs so that he could be involved in, for example, how to deal with the refugees coming to Italy at the moment. Glad that we've now outlined a uh, a recipe for radical right parties and how to successfully how su- how to successfully govern. Well, they they they're well aware of that recipe by now. They weren't in two thousand, but they now know. Of course, we also see that the contacts between the parties internationally has increased in intensity. So they they have more contacts to learn from each other. They cooperate in the European Parliament. And therefore, they are well aware of what works and what doesn't work. Mm. So you've already addressed it a little bit, but how does governing change these parties themselves? Yeah, so some parties hardly change when they're in government. They don't even moderate their stances, uh, you know, on their key issues, or they do not moderate uh, their populism. Other parties do become a bit more moderate when they're in government. But as I said before, um, this is a very temporary effect. So once they're back in opposition, they take up their old position. uh, They become as populist as they were and they continue in the way they did before their as before their uh, government participation. And for the broader public, how does their perception of these parties change and isn't government participation or even being the support party for the government really the last legitimization that they need and that they are craving for to become fully established part of um, these democratic systems? I think you're absolutely right. It is an important hurdle of legitimacy. Um, Governing with radical right parties indicates that they're parties like any other, that they're normal parties. Um, and it it disguises the fact that the programs of these parties are in opposition to some of the principles of liberal democracy. And therefore, it, it, it might not be that the parties themselves change, but the perceptions of these parties can change. Um, and in the long term, this is, of course, a big challenge for liberal democracies, um, because it means that they have their own opposition within the system um, and the boundary between what is legitimate critique on the liberal democratic system and what is illegitimate, illegitimate critique uh, starts to fade. Um, however, I think that the government participation is only the result of a, a longer standing process in which radical right parties are legitimized. So the 
the process that I already described of mainstream parties taking over the positions of radical right parties, even if it is a, in a light form, that in itself is already a process that greatly legitimizes these parties. And then, again, you've addressed it a little bit, but let's talk a bit about the impact that this has on liberal democracy and the potential danger for liberal democracy. I think it's very obvious when you look at governments where they dominate government. And we haven't really talked about this. We've more talked about them as the junior coalition partner. But if you look at um, Hungary and, and Poland, where maybe former conservative parties that probably now should be uh, categorized as radical right parties, where they dominate government, then that is a clear threat to uh, liberal democracy, no? Yes. So we know from from research and especially from the work by Kasmude and Rovira, uh, Cristobal Rovira Kaltwasser, that when radical right parties have a majority, uh, an absolute majority, that they can pretty much do whatever they want to our liberal democratic systems. They can undermine freedom of the press, freedom of association. They can uh, undermine the independence of courts. Uh, they can curtail the political opposition. Um, and we see that uh, these systems then become less democratic and more authoritarian. This pattern is not so clear in Western Europe for two reasons. So first of all, as you already rightly said, in these countries, radical right parties have usually been the junior parties in the government coalition. Uh, the only exception is perhaps Italy, uh, where uh, Silvio Berlusconi governed together with the Lega and the Alianza Nazionale. And of course, there there is a case to be made that Silvio Berlusconi himself was a right-wing populist so you could argue that that was a coalition of right-wing populists. Um, and we also observed there that that coalition did infringe on the independence of courts. Um, but there's another reason why uh, the consequences are not so severe in Western Europe, and that is that our liberal democracies are more institutionalized than those in uh, Eastern Europe. So, of course... Uh, democracy only came uh, again to e Eastern Europe in 1989. Um, and it's, it takes time to really uh, root a liberal democratic system in a society. Um, and because that process is still ongoing in Eastern Europe, the liberal democracy there is more fragile than in Western Europe. So we see in Western Europe when radical right parties challenge the system, um, and this has happened on a number of occasions when radical right parties were in government. Think, for example, of the Austrian FPO um, that tried to get more influence over the um, intelligence and security services. Um, we see that the system still is able to respond quite adequately to that. Um, and that the judiciary and other countervailing powers are able to neutralize those kinds of threats. We, of course, at the moment live uh, through a global pandemic that has had a strong impact on politics. And one observation that's generally made, or at least a hypothesis, is that there is an increased demand for government competence. So the idea is now people have seen firsthand how important it is 
to have competent governments and that um, be- because otherwise people are dying uh, in, in this pandemic. And so this is very tangible. One hypothesis is that this will make life much more difficult for populist and populist radical right parties. Um, do you agree with that? Um, no, I don't agree with that. So those voters that support the radical right have a quite different perspective on uh, governing. Um, so instead of government being responsible, as Peter Mayer would, would say, they want government to be responsive. They want governments to implement what citizens want. Uh, rather than do what the right thing is according to experts and research. So I don't think that here we see a major shift uh, that could cause radical right parties to lose. I think there could be another reason why the corona crisis is not particularly favorable to radical right parties, and that is um, that the crisis puts their issues a bit uh, lower on the political agenda. Uh, so radical right parties do particularly well when a lot of citizens are concerned about immigration and integration. Their electoral peak was also uh, at the height of the refugee crisis in the polls. Um, and right now, of course, the main concerns are with health policy, but also with economic policy. So with rising unemployment, um, with uh, uh, the the economic consequences of the crisis, and that could potentially be at the detriment of radical right parties. Now, it is the, it's not certain whether this will remain the uh, balance within the, the uh, issue agenda in politics and the foreseeable future. Of course, we now already have debates about um, taking in refugees from Moira after the fires that took place there. And these are, are, of course, issues on which radical right parties are very confident and have a very clear narrative. It seems to me that some uh, populist radical right parties try to become the vehicle of these um, anti-corona measure protests. Um, this seems to me, though, to be a difficult balance because it pit their populist perspective against their authoritarian one. So for populists, it seems to me that it works very well to say, okay, we are against these government measures uh, based on all sorts of conspiracy ideas, but also just, just generally. Um, but then on the other hand, one core really of radical right parties are these authoritarian law and order top-down elements that should find a lot of support uh, for the measures that are currently being taken. Do you agree with, with that perspective? I think this is a really interesting perspective that I hadn't considered yet. I agree with you that we do see that some radical right parties are engaging in alliances with uh, anti-lockdown uh, movements, but also anti-vaccine movements, um, and that are actively embracing conspiracy theories in these areas. I think that there might not be an opposition here between their populism and their authoritarianism. And I think this has to do with the fact that radical right parties are authoritarian, so they want a strictly ordered society, 
um, in which rules prevail, but they also feel that those rules are always for other citizens rather than their own supporters, right? Because their own supporters already behave the way they should. So um, they want rules for the political opposition that they disagree with. They want rules to keep the lunatic left under control, but they don't really want rules um, for their own supporters because their own supporters are law-abiding citizens. And I think we see this opposition in in many uh, examples uh, within these parties. So, for example, when it comes to party financing, which is, of course, also an area which is strictly regulated, uh, we see that these parties feel that those rules are there to keep the corrupt elite in check, but they don't really apply to the radical right parties themselves. And actually, many radical right parties have had problems but because they have disobeyed uh, uh, party, uh, party financing legislation. And we also see this in areas of welfare chauvinism where these parties say, well, we need the state to really prosecute immigrants and social parasites that profit from the system, but our own citizens are deserving citizens, right? They are entitled to rules and the government shouldn't uh, step into their houses every day to check whether they're uh, complying with the system. So I think they have a very dual authoritarianism in that sense where the rules are for the others, but not for their own supporters. Mm -hmm. And I guess a third additional factor is that in many countries, um, their connection to certain interest groups um, are really, these re are really the interest groups of the petty bourgeoisie, right? So the, let's say the restaurant owner or the owner of a small construction company. And it also seems that economically, um, this is a group that's very strongly hit by um, the, by, or was by the, by the strict lockdown measures. So in Switzerland, and we haven't talked about Switzerland at all, actually, right, where the, where the radical right has been in government is strongly institutionalized. You could really see that the radical right was the channel for the uh, tourism and hospitality industry to get their demands through. And I think this might be the case in other countries where this is little less institutionalized than in Switzerland, but these economic interests might also play, play a role there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So in the Netherlands, it was also Forum for Democracy, the radical right party of Thierry Baudet, who was the first one to call for an end to the lockdown because of the economic consequences it was having for uh, small businesses and uh, independent workers. Mm -hmm. Great, sir. We're already coming to an end of the podcast. The last question I always ask is for reading recommendations. One political science piece and another piece, not political science, maybe a piece of fiction. So my favorite uh, political science book at the moment is, of course, on the radical right. Uh, it's called The Far Right Today by Kas Mudde, who is the leading scholar on this topic uh, for, for a number of decades now. Um, I think his book is very provocative uh, in that it offers uh, a sort of contrarian perspective on these parties. Uh, and really details how these parties are currently challenging our liberal democracies. And then my uh, fiction uh, recommendation is a book about politics in the Netherlands, 
Um, Because the Netherlands is often quite a difficult country to understand, but Ian Buruma has really uh, outlined it uh, quite nicely in a book that is called Murder in Amsterdam, which is uh, loosely based on the murder of Theo van Gogh uh, in the Netherlands in 2004. And to understand Dutch politics today, it is really key to have a sense how the assassination of Pim Fortuyn in 2004, uh, 2002, uh, sorry, and the assassination of um, Theo van Gogh in 2004 have transformed the Netherlands. Because it, it's really been a watershed moment for how we think about the radical right, but also how Dutch people think, for example, about freedom of expression. Uh, how they think of themselves as a tolerant nation. Uh, so if you want to understand the Dutch, I think this is a great read. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.